Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAPS podcast, our series of conversations with top scholars in the field. With me today is Peter Moore. He's a professor of political science at Case Western University. Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, and you've been working for many years on uh, on the effects of long-term war on economies in the Middle East, especially in Jordan. Um, could you just Let's just start just by talking about that a little bit. How have all of these wars, uh, in your opinion, shaped uh, the, the nature of political economy in, uh, in Jordan? Yeah, so uh, the case of Jordan is a good one because you're talking about different forms of warfare dating since World War I and, and the Great Arab Uprising. And so they've had differential effects over time. And I think one of the more interesting arguments that comes out of some of the revisionist history on Jordan is that actually war uh, built the Jordanian state, or to quote one historian, you know, Jordan is a, is a state that was built by an army. Um, this is going to change uh, by the 1970s. I mean, up until the 1970s, Jordan's entire economy uh, one calculation had 13% of the workforce actually employed in the military, which, if accurate, would be historically even higher than Prussia. Um, that up until the 1970s, war in the Jordanian context was exactly what the economy was built for. It was built to have a security apparatus that was engaging in interstate wars and, and the various cold, uh, hot wars in between. Um, this is going to change in the 1970s, and what's going to happen is Jordan suffers a, a civil war, and uh, this is going to precipitate an expansion of the Jordanian state into the economy, at least an administrative expansion, along a whole host of things related to education. All how the how did the loss of the West Bank affect that? Well, I think that, that uh, one of the interesting things about the West Bank is that Jordan had an opportunity uh, when it had the West Bank to extend state apparatus in terms of everything from uh, import substitution industrialization to actually finance. And it's pretty clear now by the historical record that they didn't do that, that the West Bank was uh, treated uh, in terms of public expenditure far less than the other parts of the kingdom, and that serious investment uh, was not pursued. So the, the, both the, the holding of the West Bank was an opportunity for the Jordanian state to chart, chart a different path, but because owing to the fact that essentially their economy was built around maintaining a, a really large military uh, in proportion to the labor force, this was not a policy that they were going to pursue. So once they lost the West Bank, there were immediate short-term effects in terms of unemployment, in terms of loss of GDP, things like this. But the losses were really short-term because Jordan had never, at least the regime, had never really invested uh, that much in the West Bank in terms of seeing it as an economic um, asset. But um, the character of war is going to change. So 1970 is a civil war. This is a fundamentally different challenge uh, to the monarchy. And, and I think that one of the things that we're learning more about it is it wasn't just a challenge of sort of existential threat. The fact that there were parts of neighborhoods in Amman that were liberated, uh, that were fighting against the Hashemites. But rather, this was a much broader challenge to the previous way that the state had gone about managing the economy and taking care of its, of its allies. So... The character of war changes. The Jordanian state and the regime is going to react to the civil war. And I think the 1970s is the real turning point, that things that happened in 1989 that most of us that study Jordan look up, look as the pivot, right? So there's a, there's a, a fiscal crisis in 89. They bring back parliament. 
Rather, I think that the events of the late 80s and early 90s are the effect of what was put in place in the 1970s. I remember an article you wrote a while back where you really traced the, uh, the, the integration of Jordan with the Iraqi economy during the, the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. Right, yeah, this is the second phase. So if we can think of Jordan as basically having an economy and a state built for uh, uh, propagating war up until the 1970s, from the 1980s on, what's going on is that they're, they're using war as a way to, to, to derive capital accumulation and external rents, but also to placate important parts of the labor market that had seen advancements in the 70s, but because of the fact that you essentially have a limited state, in other words, it's fiscally limited, it's not extracting very many resources, that by the 80s and 90s you begin to see the effect of this, which is you had sort of an extension of state administrative policies uh, and investments in the economy in the 70s that by the 80s and 90s are beginning to atrophy. And they, can't, they can neither let go of those investments nor can they extract the, the necessary resources to keep them going. So the, uh, the, the relationship with Iraq in the 80s and 90s, I think, is fundamental to, to the changes in, in the Jordanian economy, changes in the way the elite is circulated. And then finally, this is, we know less about this, and this is part of my research. I think it had profound effects on both the Jordanian military and the U.S. relationship with the Jordanian security services. That, what we see today uh, in terms of the U.S. role in Jordan, I think was incubated in the early, in the early 80s vis-a-vis the, 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 the Iran-Iraq war. Now, you've, you've actually done quite a lot of tracking, like the, the trucking networks and the kinds of, uh, you know, really, you know, deep relationships are formed between the so- southern Jordanian areas and, and Iraq through this period. And one of the things which is interesting is that, if I remember your argument correctly, that uh, this is both before the, the, the 1990-91 war, but then afterwards, through the sanctions period, those relationships continue and they evolve in all kinds of interesting ways related to these illicit economies. Yeah, this is the double-edged sword that in the 1980s, that relationship with uh, Iraq will be bedrock to the economy. I mean, it revolutionizes the port of Aqaba. It, in, it, it, it builds a transportation sector in Jordan that's going to be huge, very important, and also strategic uh, in the south. Um, but by the 1990s, this relationship and those industries that were built up to service the Iraqi market will become more and more problematic because Jordan is caught between the demands of the U.S. regarding sanctions, but it's stuck with the demands of, 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 a, of a transport sector and an industrial sector that was wedded to Iraq and does not want to see that relationship um, uh, in any way weaken. And so what begins to happen in the 90s is the regime wants to hold on to those important linkages, but those linkages are becoming more and more politically um, dangerous vis-a-vis the Americans. And then particularly after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, those relationships will be looked at in the less of an economics uh, realm, in other words, here's an important labor market, and more in the security realm. These are potential ways that the blowback from the civil war in Iraq is going to to come into the kingdom. Um, And so essentially, I mean, it takes the monarchy a long time, but essentially they, they vote to destroy or to let die that industry and that transport sector. And that's one reason Jordan is 
as one of the highest unemployment rates uh, in the region. And that helps to explain the uh, the persistent rounds of unrest in some of these southern cities. Yeah, I think it's connected. I think, you know, so one of the things about 89 that, that is a turning point is that the unrest, we, we see it in areas of the country we had not seen, like in the 50s, and we see it among groups that we that are perceived to be loyal to the regime, and that's crucial, and that is and and that is connected to the ups and downs of, of this relationship. I mean, at one point, the Iraqi Jordanian uh, land transport company had 12,000 trucks um, that, that were operating. And if you think about, it's not just one truck driver, it's multiplied, you know, uh, by people that service it and the roads and all this kind of stuff. You're talking about a very wide part of the Jordanian economy, which is going to be adversely affected by the essentially the end of the Iraqi market. Now, when you start getting these these uh, sequential flows of refugees from Iraq, I mean that's a it's usually presented as an economic burden on on Jordan, which in many ways it was. But at least when it's the the middle and upper classes that are coming, it also is quite a stimulus to the to the Jordanian economy. One another way oh, that yeah. you see these connections, right? And 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 it's and it's different in this sense, which is which is to say that the building of a transport network has sort of these what what economists would call backward linkages. The problem, though when you have Iraqi capital flight coming that's the upper income, what it does is it, it helps develop uh, footloose investment primarily in real estate. And so the backward linkages from real estate are far less. Now, what it does do is it helps cement in the 80s and the 90s the, recircula- the recirculation of new elites, or not new, but, but the, the sons and daughters of the traditional elites. It allows them to get into business in a new way. It allows them to, to uh, accumulate capital through real estate speculation. Um, and and sort of to bring it up to today, the difference, of course, with the Syrian refugees is they're not coming in with money, and they're not the elites by and large, and they're not taking capital flight from Damascus and plowing it into the real estate market in Jordan. Uh, now Jordan is getting all of the negatives of of the refugees, uh, similar to the to the post nineteen forty eight period, but none of or very few of the kinds of. Um, footloose, quick investment uh, boom that you saw when the Iraqis were coming in the 90s and then after 2003. There's also less of a disruption to existing uh, like transport networks and that sort of thing, right? Less integration of the economy? Right, yeah. You mean in, in terms Between of... Between Syria and Jordan. Yes. Um, I mean, the other thing that, 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 that this kind of refugee flow, whereas the Iraqis never looked really like the Palestinians, not just because they weren't registered as refugees, but because it was very clear, even by 2000, 2004-2005 that these these Iraqi refugees were were mobile and they were going back and forth. Um, what this looks like with the Syrians, a, a large part of the Syrian refugee population is they're not going back. And so Jordan is having to face the kinds of questions that it faced in the 50s with the Syrian refugees, but the solution in the 50s was the advent of UNRWA and significant international support that could that allowed the Jordanian state to simply ignore parts of its society while it built this war economy or an economy for war. Um, that's not the case now, and 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 there's significant international aid for there is, for but 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 I'll give you a good example. For instance, right now there's the, there's an informal policy to allow Syrian children into classrooms. So the way they've done it, particularly, and we're talking outside the camps, in the regular public school system. So what they've started doing is they're running two-a-day classes. So they run the Syrians in the morning till noon, and then the Jordanian students in the afternoon. Um, And of course, the problem with this is it's bad for both sides in this. It puts a massive strain on an educational system that 
Oh, by the way, has massive cheating scandals, high levels of failures in the Taljihi. So what's happening is they're, they're integrating the Syrians, they're being forced to do it, but they don't have the same kinds of almost like parallel institutions that UNRWA provided through the 50s and 60s as an employer. And the Jordanian government's been very honest in saying, demanding of the international community, give us money to employ Syrians. Give us money to build new schools for Syrians and Jordanians. And that's, that's above and beyond the kinds of demands that they had made in the past. And so there's a real open question as to how they're going to absorb these refugees. So would it be fair to say that one way to, to read your account of, of, of Jordan's evolving political economy is that people are wrong to see war as something which is perennially putting these stresses on, uh, on the Jordanian state, but instead that you actually can't understand the Jordanian state without these wars, that this is actually part of what Jordan is. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think that to maybe put it in more formal terms, that war is both an exogenous and an endogenous variable. It shifts over time. So a lot of the conceptions that we have about what war does to states and economies um, I think Jordan, and not just Jordan, I think you could look at the Democratic Republic of Congo, you could look at Sudan, you could look at countries that essentially were born in war and have had uh, decades of war at different levels and peaks and valleys. Um, and so in that case, yeah, I think you can't understand uh, the evolution of, of this state and this economy without understanding its role in war. It's, it's so we've mostly been talking about Iraq and Syria, but what about, what about uh, Israel and uh, the conclusion of a peace treaty in 1994? What does that do to, or if anything, to these war economies? I mean, I think that, that it, in, one, in, in one sense, these wars vis-a-vis the Israelis were far different because they didn't, they were, they were, they were qualitatively different in the challenge that was presented in 1970. That's one thing. But the peace treaty itself, uh, I think, should be viewed more as part and parcel of the relationship that was cemented with the Americans in the 1980s. That this, that, I mean, it's not hard to imagine in the late 80s that you're going to get this agreement between, between the Hashemites and Tel Aviv. Um, And, but, but the promises of the peace dividends is something that, that play, that wreaked havoc uh, with um, the Jordanian population because they were promised something along the lines of a Camp David, uh, along the lines of economic, uh, new economic opportunity, cross-border things that never came about and um, have instead been pointed at as uh, reasons either that the, the, the agreement is faulty or that the regime itself is, is uh, diverting the resources, the benefits of this, of this peace treaty. Um, and, and I think this was something that, that also speaks to this division between IR and, and, and comparative, which is I think countries, entities like Jordan or the Palestinian Authority, or I think even Yemen, they, re, they have redefined what it means to be a client. You know, I mean, is a, if a client is someone who merely does your foreign policy bidding, we're way beyond that in the case of the relationship, the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Jordan. Um, it's a much deeper relationship that, that I think that the term client doesn't really capture. All right. Well, well, thank you, uh, Pete Moore, Case Western University. Uh, thanks for joining this conversation. Thank you. Thank you.